Welcome to episode 34 of the Strategics Podcast, where we ask the paradigm-shifting question, is it the end of the world? And today we're going to return to our focus on the Ontario election, where we're going to ask, is it the end of the world for Doug Ford, Kathleen Wynne, or Andrea Horvath? Plus, we're going to talk about if you're a small organization or a community group, or you've got an issue that you want to raise during the writ, how do you do that? Joe, let's start with you. Is it the end of the world for one of the three leaders? Well, it definitely will likely be the end of the road for two out of the three. Obviously, the uh, the party leader whose who's, uh, organization, whose party wins the vote, will carry on, form a government, and uh, live happily ever after. Uh, but I think in today's world where we demand results now, it's not any different in politics. Uh, certainly, Ms. Horvath's been through a number of elections. If she doesn't do at least significantly better this time around, I think that they will definitely replace her. Uh, the premier, if she does not win, another uh, mandate will be gone. Uh, Mr. Ford, he's a bit of a wild card, as, as he usually is. Uh, he's only been the leader for a little while. He's certainly already revolutionized the party, for good or, or not. And so I'd be interested to know what others think about him, even if he l somehow manages to lose this election, which I think is his to win, if uh, his party will stick with him for another four years. Um, I'm willing to be a little more definitive than that. It is the end of the world, the end of the road for Kathleen Wynne. Um, Barring any dramatic change in um, communication and electioneering strategy, you know, the Ford campaign the camp is running a pretty smart for them strategy, keeping him quiet, keeping him non-controversial. Um, the win campaign has little choice, I think, but to go negative. Um, you know, they're not getting much of any traction from their um, throwing cash at at popular uh, social uh, projects, um, you know that's so. So barring any un, unima to me unimaginable change, um, the conservatives are going to pull off a pretty big win, probably a majority win. Uh, the liberals will finish a fairly distant third, and uh, Ms. Horvath and the NDP will 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 pick up some ground. Um, Based on you know the the kind of we don't want to we, we don't want to hold our nose and vote liberal uh, we don't want to vote for Ford so we got to park our vote somewhere uh, from their point of view the NDP you know is running a fairly positive fairly quiet campaign uh, so that you know they, so if the conservatives and the NDP keep running the way they are um, the only way that that the liberals can hope to change anything is doing some something dramatically different, and I don't I don't see what option they have to do anything dramatically different. So, I think that uh, Win loses and is out very quickly. Uh, I think Ford wins, but even if the unforeseeable happened, um, he has re-energized uh, and the the Conservative Party and cleaned up some some past issues. So he would he would I think be given another chance. And Andrea, I think it's kind of up up to her if she has a stronger showing, which I think she will. Um, she probably has the option of having another mandate. Uh, I'm kind of a, a little more different, I guess, than uh, Joe or Jeff on this one in the sense that I think win goes either way. I think if she wins, she goes, and I think if she loses, she goes. 
Um, because I don't think she wants to go through this again. And I think it's, you know, she's at a certain age where, okay, if she wins, I've vindicated myself. I'm gone, you know, within two years or whatever that number is. I think Ford leaves if he loses. I don't think he has an interest in hanging around in opposition at all. Um, I think if he wins, then he wins and he stays. I think Horvath's got more of a difficult problem in the sense that she can be second and stay, but only if she improves her, her footing. If somehow, let's say, the uh, conservatives wipe out and the liberals, you know, drop or stay, get some nugget there, and she doesn't gain a lot of seats. I think she did there'd be a lot of pressure on her to go, especially from whatever that waffle group is that showed up last time, uh, whether it was the federal, the Linda McQuaig crowd. Mm-hmm. And I think they would start pushing to the left because mm-hmm. she's not really done that a lot. She seemed to have been a little more of a populist consumer oriented kind of a, uh, of a, of a, of a leader right now. I don't necessarily think um, it's a wipeout right yet for the liberals, just in the sense that I think you'd look at it and you'd say, okay, you know, we're behind. Do we get any traction with those middle voters? Now, the trouble is, is if the middle voters are kind of what happened with Trump, which more or less they stayed with them, people didn't recognize that they were actually kind of Trump voters and you couldn't shake them loose, then, yeah, they're going to get kind of smoked. I think to some degree, though, they would, they might look at, keeping a positive rather than a negative campaign. And here I'm thinking of Larry Grossman back in 87 when he kind of ran an anti-Francophone campaign, but he basically did it because he knew they were going to get smoked by Peterson and what he needed to do was keep a certain number of seats viable. And I think if Wynn thinks she's going to get killed, I don't think it becomes throwing every deck chair over it saying, okay, I had my run, you know, who's next up. So it's, it's Del Duca. Fine. Let's run a positive campaign. So that gives him something to build on. So, Jeff, I, I want to pick up on something that you said, that uh, you think that the conservative strategy will be to keep them quiet and uh, run a low-key campaign, which I think is what they will try to do. But as we've seen from the past uh, week or so, that uh, you know Doug Ford was caught on tape speaking to a group of developers where he said he would open up the green belt and allow it for development. And and now, you know, once that tape leak a week and a half later, he's uh, he's turned around. So is that strategy, you know, people would accuse it of being a flip flop and others would say, well, he listened to the people and therefore he did the right thing. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I think that I think that kind of validates um, what I'm suggesting is their strategy is, you know, first of all, he didn't announce in a public venue as part of his campaign that he's going to turn over the green belt to developers. It was something he said to a developer audience. Uh, and you know, they're the people with the deep pockets. So he tells them what they want, hopes to get a lot of money. And, and by the way, the conservatives have been, you know, out, out raising everybody else. Uh, and then as soon as it became apparent immediately that it was controversial, he said, okay, I hear you. I'm, you know, I'm not going to be Mr. Controversial and try and force through things that, uh, people don't want. Um, you know, I'm going to be a fiscal conservative and and quiet on inflammatory divisive issues. So in, in that regard, you know, he's not a Donald Trump who just says whatever he wants to say and let the pieces fall where, where they may. Um, he has some less divisive, uh, less divisive rhetoric. Um, so, you know, you call it a flip-flop if you want, uh, you know, it's just that's just a, a pejorative term for uh, changing his position. Um, 
So yeah, I think that is on strategy. But you know, I, I think this is a, a very unique election. I, I'd love to hear if you guys agree because um, of Mr. Ford. Uh, the 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 example that you used the tool in terms of the green belt is very interesting that uh, he basically used a, a, a populist message to say well I threw something out there I listened to the people I'm I'm big enough to to make a U-turn when the people speak so it's always that sort of the people argument that uh, mm -hmm. politicians are there to serve and he's a servant of the people when in the past. Uh, I think politicians rely much more on policies and to a certain degree ideology to argue why people should support what they like. Um, I'm not sure if all three party leaders are playing by the same rule book. I think Mr. Ford is changing the rule book as it goes along to suit his particular needs. So one of the things that I'm very curious about when it comes to people trying to or groups trying to influence the political leaders is um, what rule book are we playing by? What is effective in 2018? And I think a lot of us are still playing by the rules of, you know, uh, 2001, 2004, those types of uh, more traditional uh, elections. Mm -hmm. Joe, what, tell, me, tell me what rules do you see ch have changed or that is for changing? Well, I think uh, before platforms mattered, uh, and we saw this time around the Conservative Party uh, sort of w under Patrick Brown tried to play that. They released uh, a very Brown-centered platform, which obviously with uh, his problems was quickly ditched. And, and Mr. Ford uh, was very clear to say, I'm not bound basically by that platform, which he thought, which he basically positioned as his predecessor. And so um, I, I know the NDP has now released its platform. The liberals have been releasing their platform now for two years by basically making announcements and, and having budgets that announce, you know, goodies for everybody. So, uh, you know, traditionally, and, 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 you know, Phil talked about, uh, you know, Larry Grossman and David Peterson back in the late 80s, everybody for platforms, they all discussed and debated platforms. And, and we sort of, we kind of all knew how to play. I, I'm finding that every day is different, uh, mainly due to Mr. Ford and, and, and the things that he said. I think Ford I, is talking more about values. You know, he, he's been big on uh, transparency. Certainly the conservatives have had some huge problems um, from the Brown era. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess I agree with you that, the, you know, as a platform, um, it's not driving things. But, but uh, a set of values, uh, you know, the old... We're going to give you more services, and it's going to cost less. Um, we're going to be more transparent. Um, so it's not a necessarily defined platform, but it's certainly the point of view. I'd look at it a little bit, Atul. We, were, we talked a long time ago about rhetoric in politics. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is kind of entering a post or a, a rhetorical age, a post-platform post age, to, to agree with Joe, that we've had before, except we've looked at it, I've looked at it slightly the wrong way. My model for this many years ago was Brian Tobin. I always thought Brian Tobin was a very eloquent speaker, and he would get in these debates around leadership that weren't really that different in terms of platform, but because he was a more eloquent speaker, people kind of in the John Kennedy way bought into his vision. You know, he, he sounded like we're on the road to you know, to Nirvana, whatever that kind of rhetoric he was using at the time was. Ford, in a sense, is post-rhetorical, but more as an embodiment of the values. So if you, if you said, Jeff, um, 
you know, like, well, maybe the, the platform doesn't match up. So he wants to cut the carbon tax, but that gives him whatever that number is, a big hole in his budget, but he's not going to fire any workers. But people, because he kind of embodies the rhetoric of what he talks about, people in effect say in their minds, okay, if I support him, he'll find a way around that. That's just numbers that, that bureaucrats match up. But I need a guy who, who you know, understands the values, understands where we're going, whatever that number is, but is committed to it. You know, the same way that, you know, you would have looked back in the old Southern politicians, none of their, any of that stuff, whether it was uh, George Wallace or Huey Long or any of those guys made any sense. It was just, they were the embodiment of keeping Southern values or whatever that ideal was, whereas somebody with a platform was just a guy talking numbers. But, but I mean, they, and I think the liberals and, and the NDP are trying to make that juxtaposition where, where he may talk about values, where, you know, Mr. Ford tries to come across as someone who ha- shares the values of the, the common person, yet still operates the party in a very sort of centralist way. And we, we saw that through the, uh, the nomination or the, uh, you know, uh, he imposed 11 candidates that he wanted uh, during the election and uh, took out took the nomination away from others. So how do we square that with with the values of you know democracy and decency and uh, you know I'm for the people yet uh, not for the people in his party that he doesn't want in his party. Well, can I throw in a, the cynical uh, vote on this one? Is um, this is all about public relations and marketing, and uh, it, it has nothing to do with truth. Because fundamentally, when you're talking about values and, you know, being authentic and stuff, those are values-based terms. And in politics today, uh, it's not about being uh, transparent and all that. It's being being seen to be. And so there's there's a big difference between uh, holding our politicians accountable for what they believe in and for what we want them to believe in. You see what I'm saying? So I, I think Mr. Ford genuinely uh, understands uh, the modern voter, and people want to have 10-second sound bites they can listen to and then head off to their kid's soccer game. They don't want to sit there and think about a debate. We do because we're in the business. The, the, the voter, they just want to feel good that somebody's listening to them, that somebody's got their back, all that kind of stuff. Well, I would agree with you, Joe, in the sense that I've always believed, having spent time in policy development in parties, that, in effect, voters now want an analogy for how you would run a government. So, effectively, an analogy might be, for instance, when John Kretchen grabbed that that protester. Now, that's not the analogy, but people would know that right away as the embodiment of something, being tough or whatever it was. Uh, I always felt Mike Harris did really well by talking about getting after welfare queens or whatever the term he used at the time was, but not because he necessarily or his voters wanted to cut um, payments, but they wanted somebody who was going to be tough. And that was the embodiment. So I think what they do, I agree with you, but I don't think they just want to put it away. I think they want something that says, okay, I'm cutting the carbon tax. So whether that's good or bad for the environment, I'm looking out for the average taxpayer. So people would go, okay, maybe I like the carbon tax, but I'm not going to vote against him on that because he's got my, my values on a bunch of other things as embodied by him cutting the carbon tax. So I, I just want to follow up on the uh, the post-platform uh, era a little bit. And I agree with that. I mean, I, and I think that the embodiment of change and values used to be in the policy document. So we saw in David Peterson 
that beer and wine in the corner stores was the symbol of change. Now he didn't, you know, he talked about it, but it was in their policy document. That's where it came out. And I think as Phil, as you said, you know, in the common sense revolution document that Mike Harris put out, it was also the embodiment of change in leadership. And now if we're post-platform, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that 30 second, 15 second, 10 second soundbite that people can go, okay, I agree with that. So I think, I think we're all on, on sort of the same, same wavelength on that. But how do you then communicate that? We found you know, Ford is able to do that. Do we think that Wynn and, and Horvath can do the same? I think it's the challenge, perhaps, for the Ford campaign is that, you know, in the absence of, the, uh, of the, a formal platform, uh, it is harder, <clears throat> harder for proxies, for Ford proxies, to articulate his position. I find that, you know, he's been reasonably good at, at articulating his position and his values and as waffly and, and, and you know, fuzzy as, as they are, um, you know, he's, he looks like a politician's politician. He's got a point of view. So he's pretty, but he's pretty good at uh, articulating them, but without a formal party platform, how do his proxies articulate? Is, is everybody left to freelance? Is everybody left to kind of guess at, uh, you know, what would Doug do? Um, not as big a challenge for the other parties, I think, that have more of a formalized platform. But to me, it's it's more of an issue of finding out the right policy that would be the embodiment of what I'm talking about in terms of what kind of government would you would you lead? Uh, Jeff, though, you're right about the proxies because one of the troubles is if you're Ford and you've hit that whatever that thing is, whether it's the carbon tax or whatever that kind of embodies, or maybe it's just the overall tax cutter kind of thing that embodies Doug Ford, you don't want a whole lot of proxies out there running around. Yeah, he'll do this, he'll do that, because the thing then becomes is you're you're in government, and then it's in your blindsided because up in Brantford, the guy promised, uh, you know, he's not as good as Doug Ford, so he promised a water cistern here or stuff that doesn't make any sense because you needed the votes. But then all of a sudden, you feel hamstrung in because the one one good thing about a platform is, you know, you have eight hundred gazillion promises in there. You can always point to something. You can always say, well, what should we do in Brantford? Okay, you know, under the agriculture, here's what we're saying here. Oh, okay, I can I can work with that. But if you just give it a freelance, the next thing, you know, promising ethanol in, in, uh, in, in uh, gas, gasoline and stuff that everybody's going, well, why, why do we promise this? Well, we needed to see. Right. And if I could play Joe Kudo for a moment and be present, uh, you know, what difference does the platform make anyway? Um, you know, the conservatives have no ability to do anything on carbon tax or carbon cap and trade because it's not a provincial matter. Um, you know, you, they cannot physically by the laws of physics, um, cut taxes and increase services and maintain full employment. Uh, the liberals can't deliver all the promises that they, they are making and, and haven't in the past. So, you know, the platform is essentially nice rhetoric to try and sway votes, but it doesn't actually result in most cases in, in, in real policy that um, is going to get followed through on. That's the cynical you know again every every political campaign now in the 21st century is done through um, you know some very very deliberate positioning of candidates as commodities right so we ha all you have to look back is at the uh, the last presidential election 
those were two very distinct individuals which you loved or hated. And you see what happens, right? The one very successful, one not very successful, all that kind of thing. So I think with, with the Ontario election, we're seeing a little bit of that. I, I, I And I'd love to hear your per- perceptions of uh, how each party has rolled out their quote-unquote platforms a little differently. And they're trying to appeal to uh, to a, a broader uh, audience. Uh, the Conservatives and the NDP, I think, are very much focused on the the ability of of Ontarians to to want change. That they need change. And the and the Liberals are playing traditionally about look at all the great things this government has done, and look at all the money that we're going to give to every single group we can think of, except X, Y, and Z. So. In a lot of ways, it's a traditional campaign, as it were, but it's very much a 21st century campaign about individuals and parties now being commodities. Do you want to, you want them, uh, or you don't. You buy them, or you don't. And that's very different. I, I, I personally think that people are not buying platforms; they're buying ideas and dreams that these candidates are putting out there. And once whoever gets into power, once they're there, well, they can change that because they can always say, oh, well, we're listening to the people. And therefore, we thought we could do this, but instead we're doing this. But it's really good because it's, it's you know, a better version of Coke, right? And whether or not people buy that, well, you know, classic Coke is still classic Coke. Are they buying ideas and dreams or are they buying a brand? So, you know, the Doug oh, Ford brand is, I'm not Rob Ford. Uh, the Kathleen Wynne brand is, uh, I don't know, I mean, you know, we'll, we'll give you something, but we're not old and tired, really. And uh, the Andrew Horvath <laughs> brand is, uh, we're nice people and this is important stuff, but don't worry, we're always going to be here and, you know, you'll get around to us eventually. <laughs> I don't think that's how they drew it up in the war room, John. <laughs> you don't know? No. <laughs> Well, and that's why they don't hire me to help them draw up their, their plans. <laughs> well, it, uh, to Joe's point, though, it is it is interesting that uh, you know we have Ford who is taking a different approach on it. We've got the Liberals in terms they don't have a traditional platform, but they do have a series of announcements and the budget, which is essentially the platform to say, "Look, if you elect us, here's what we are going to be spending our money on. Here's what we're going to do for you." And the NDP have opted for a traditional, fully costed platform in a book that can be distributed and downloaded or, you know, read at your pleasure. So it is going to cause some interesting and and, uh, different dynamic in this election where they're not all operating from the same level. Uh, So let's uh, let's turn our... What's the over-under on many people read the NDP platform? I think it's a traditional... Seven? Yeah, it's a traditional platform that uh, appeals to the core. The the NDP learned their lesson in the last election. They don't want to move into the center right. They want to maintain their values and uh, express those values. And uh, they are they have been and uh, they have seen a lot of their ideas taken over by the Liberals. You know the pharmacare. So they've come up with slightly different versions of that. Even though uh, you know they they can they will try to claim that that it was their idea in the first place. So, so why don't we uh, why don't we turn our attention to you know what happens during the campaign period? We still have a number of groups and uh, community organizations and uh, companies and who want to find a way to get their message across. 
any thoughts on how they can do that? What kind of tactics then that they can use to um, be seen kind of above the fray or uh, you know penetrate through the cloud of noise that's going to occur during the election campaign? Joe? It's an excellent question because I, I maintain that this is a very different type of election. Um, I, I am wondering if there are ways that the political parties can work around the traditional uh, filters that have, uh, have, have been part of the campaigns uh, that people put out there. And, and I'm thinking about media, for instance. We've already seen Mr. Ford saying, I'm not going to have a, a campaign bus to have reporters following me around. You want to come to Sault Ste. Marie, book a flight, that kind of thing. You know, that's that's shifting a paradigm of how we traditionally um, uh, expose our political candidates. And so uh, I'm very interested if the political parties can find different ways of reaching people, um, for instance, through social media. And we've seen, I, I have seen, maybe perhaps you have seen on social media, uh, the ads very much targeted to um, to 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 social media users and very specific messaging that isn't necessarily what we've seen in TV ads, for instance, in the past. Um, so we know that young people, for instance, are a key group, an untapped group. And so I'm really wondering if uh, any of the parties can actually use uh, non-traditional ways of reaching people, because I have to say, I know I sound really kind of uh, crabby and uh, and, uh, and and you know fed up with uh, everything that we see in politics, but I think people just don't have as much uh, time to listen to the politicians droning on and on before they make the decision. They really are consumers. They want to feel good. So how do how do we find ways, if you're a political party, of reaching people and speaking to them at that level? One of the things uh, following on what Joe said to me is the idea that if you're an interest group, you can actually start leapfrogging a bit directly to consumers or directly to voters in a way that you couldn't before. Before, you needed some sort of a buffer to get you around the issue of the journalist. So you needed some credibility either with your group or through a politician suggesting something that then gave it, you know, some panache that this is a serious thing one has to consider. Whereas now what you can do, you know, you can go to social media, you can start, you know, making the case for whatever ring of fire or whatever thing you're thinking about without necessarily going back to the politicians about whether this is practical or not. Because in effect, by not following platforms, they've kind of suspended the practicality of stuff. You don't really need to make trade-offs if all you're trading is values. You don't have to trade the values. You can just say the values. And if you kind of believe that the platform isn't that much value anymore, part of the reason for a platform was the trade-offs. We need a deficit or, you know, we want to reduce the deficit, but we need to do something in pharmacare. So here's how we're going to saw it off. And you saw the whole thing as a cycle. Now, if I'm an interest group, I don't need to get in the platform. What I need to do is go out and talk to people directly and say, you know, you need to more worry about fluoridation in the water or not fluoridation in the water, whatever kind of thing you want to talk about. But I think basically I agree with Joe. You can go right to the voters then. Well, I'm going to disagree. Uh, this is a particularly risky time. I and mean, we're fortunate in Ontario and in, in Canada that um, the political environment is not yet as divisive as it is in the United States. But that said, uh, it could easily tilt in that direction. So my recommendation to special interest groups, you know, if you're a healthcare organization, if you're a 
transportation infrastructure organization, if you any other special interest interest groups, um, you very likely do not want to be seen to be necessarily favoring, strongly favoring one camp over another. So that means, you know, you want to give the same briefing to each camp. Um, you want to be fairly neutral, um, you know, lest you be tied to, you know, that's the, that's the conservative pet cause. That's the liberal pet cause. Um, because that could, in a, in a divisive world, uh, that could leave you on the outside looking in. Oh, absolutely. And, and we've seen that in the past as well. I mean, there's, there was an organization that uh, took a very public position which supported one party over the other. And uh, the party that ended up winning did not support that position. And that organization was, uh, you know, in the doghouse for a very, very long time. So you do, I agree with Jeff. I mean, you, you need to be careful, but you have to be fair and balanced. But it is a great opportunity because lots of policy, regardless of what King Campbell said many years ago, there is a lot of policy discussion that happens during campaigns. So, you know, if you're listening and you're an organization out there, you know, don't uh, miss this opportunity to to get deeply involved and make sure that the candidates know who you are and what you stand for. So, And a tool to follow up on what you just said, it's really good advice because I think any organization that wants to be relevant post-election has to be known. So you have to participate in the election. Even something like uh, put out your uh, top five priorities for your sector, for your business, for your uh, community group, whatever. And I think a lot of people spend so much time trying to uh, access uh, the leader or local candidates that they forget that they need to have a historical record as being for uh, or against things that they can then build on, hopefully in a positive way. It, it's, it's about building capital going forward that you can then draw on in the next four years. And, so, and if, if you happen to be on the wrong side of whatever party uh, gets elected, uh, you'd still need to be positioned to be relevant which means uh, make sure they don't, they have no choice but to pay attention to you, at least. It gives you a fighting chance to, to address your issues. Uh, should the government in question not be necessarily um, wanting to be doing things on your behalf or be a friendly, quote-unquote, towards you? Yeah, so at the end of the day, you have to work with, uh, with whoever you... Whoever gets elected, and that's that's certainly the advice that I give to to all my clients. So, on that note, uh, so this podcast we've had some pontification and practical advice. So hopefully it's been of some value for you. Please uh, leave us a note. We always like to get feedback on uh, on your views on the podcast. Uh, you can reach us through the show notes. Uh, we're available on Twitter, and of course the podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. I'm Atul Sharma. Until next week, be well.